Galatians chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 19 and 20. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. That says the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Great God, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for the grace that we have in him, and we thank you for the grace that you've shown to us in drawing us together as your people. Lord, now as we open your word, we pray that you would cause these truths to sink into our hearts and minds. Uh, Lord, especially in this section, may we see the heinousness of sin. Uh, may we be motivated to put sin to death in ourselves. And Lord, may, by, may you work by your spirit to cause us to live according to the spirit and not according to the desires of the flesh. We ask for your blessing upon this time now. Lord, get me out of the way. May it be your words that are spoken. And we pray that you would cause your word to come alive in the hearts of your people. Praise in the name of Christ. Amen. So we pick up again in our series in Galatians, and we are continuing now in the practical section of the letter. As we've seen over the last weeks and months, Paul has built his case against the Judaizers. Uh, he has been preaching against their message, which, which he saw as a teaching of a reliance upon works of the law. Uh, they were using the law for something it was never meant to be used for. And in response, Paul has given a fantastic definition and defense through Galatians of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now in chapter 5, we begin to see a transition as Paul has been moving into drawing some of the applications from his arguments. Now up until chapter 5, there have actually been very few instructions very few imperatives given. And in chapter 5 now we see a transition. And so we come now to the applications, some of the implications of his argument as he begins to apply what he has been saying. Now in verse 16 we saw Paul introduced us to the antithesis between the flesh and the spirit. I remember the flesh was referring to our sinful, fallen human nature. And we see that the desires of the flesh are against, they are, they are contrary to the desires of the Holy Spirit inside believers. And as we've seen, the key to battling sin, the key to fighting against these desires of the flesh, is to walk according to the Spirit. Those who walk according to the Spirit will be growing in their love for God, beholding His glory, and so being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Paul then gives us two different lists to help us understand what the fruit of living according to the flesh and living according to the Spirit will be. Now, it's an important section, and we want to do this justice, and so we will take our time uh, working through first this vice list, the list of sins, and then also the fruit of the Spirit in a future week. So let's read together verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. A life lived according to the desires of the flesh 
Paul says, produces some very obvious fruit. Uh, these things are not hard to see. They are evident. They are manifest. They are very clearly visible. Uh, they are self-evident so that truly anyone can see them if they are simply honest with themselves. Now, as we work through this list, remember Paul's conclusion. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And once again, we need to remember this is the same letter in which Paul has been contending so passionately for the gospel of justification by faith alone. And so we need to understand how these fit together. And that is, Paul is giving a warning like this, not because people can be saved through their own law-keeping, but rather because, as we've seen, those who live according to the flesh would be giving evidence that they are not truly saved. The faith that alone justifies never remains alone, but is always producing life-transforming fruit. The kind of faith that God gives to his people is not a dead faith. Remember, faith without works is dead. The person who is led by the flesh and not by the Spirit is giving evidence through their lifestyle that the root of the matter is not in them, that they do not have new hearts. So for us as the people of God, let us take this sermon as an opportunity. Remember how warnings are meant to function in the lives of God's people. If we are saved, if we have new hearts, if we have true love in our hearts for our Savior, then warnings like these will be the kind of thing that God will use to get us back on track if we have strayed. So I encourage you, come in humility to the Word of God and examine yourselves. Do any of these sins have a home in me? Is there something that I have been tolerating in my life and in my heart that I need to be putting to death? Now, the works of the flesh are evidence. And the first on Paul's list is sexual immorality. Now, the Greek word here is porneia. And this word can be used as really a blanket statement uh, for all sexual sin, anything that deviates from God's plan for sexual behavior. And so this would include fit sins like adultery, uh, the violation of the marriage covenant. It would include fornication, which is really any sexual activity outside of marriage. And it, it covers, it extends to anything that deviates from God's plan for human sexuality. Now it's quite interesting, F.F. Bruce writes about the time of Paul's writing, and he says that sexual immorality was so common in Greco-Roman antiquity that except when carried to excess, it was not regarded as specially reprehensible, close quote. Now you look around at our world today, and not much has really changed. Secular culture is saturated in sexual sin, sexual immorality. We are completely desensitized to it because it is just the cultural air that we breathe. 
I should say we can become completely desensitized to it. We have lost and must recover the use of words like fornication. Now just to give a sense of how bad this actually is, I'll give an example from my own experience. Now firstly, I was raised very well. Uh, I was clearly taught uh, that sex outside of marriage is sin, but I remember as a teenager, as a young adult, being challenged by my views on this, challenged in my views on this, and going to scripture and actually having a very difficult time proving from the Bible, you know, finding the foundation of, of where in scripture I would go to prove that this was actually something that God did not approve of. To find a place where he actually forbade uh, sex outside of marriage. It took me some work to actually find some texts that would give me confidence on this. So, may it not be said that any of our people, any of our young people, would have this same problem. So pay attention right here, Galatians 5, 19. Sexual immorality, porneia, any sexual behavior that is outside of God's intentions for sex, which is one between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. Notice from the text where this sin is listed. This is among the works of the flesh, one of the clear and evident, obvious works of the flesh. Somebody who is living in this way is living according to the flesh. And those who persevere in this sin, look at the text, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. may help you to remember as well, if you're wanting grounding for why you believe sexual sin to be sin, may help to remember that the Ten Commandments are also given as headings. What is the seventh commandment? Thou shalt not commit adultery. And as it gets applied through the rest of Scripture, we see that this sin is not only limit, limited to adultery, but we see it used as a heading for all sexual sin. So teenagers, adults, singles, anybody at all who's wondering about this or a little shaky on this question, uh, does the Bible really forbid sex outside of marriage? Does it really forbid pornography? Does it really forbid these kinds of socially acceptable sexual sins? Yes. Clearly and unambiguously. So settle this in your mind. There is no wiggle room on this. God forbids any and all sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. The next sin on our list is impurity, and this is uh, following in the context here of sexual sin. Uh, this word can be used in a broad sense, you know, all moral impurity could be included, but given the context of this word being sandwiched between sexual morality and sensuality, uh, it's likely sexual behavior, uh, sexual impurity that Paul has in mind. Uh, so this would re likely refer to unnatural forms of sexual behavior, impure, uh, impurity. So things like homosexuality, incest, bestiality, and the like. Uh, in Romans 1, we see this word used, uh, the judgment of God 
uh, is God giving sinners over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So this is what happens when God gives people over to do what ought not to be done, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And in Romans 1, one of the premier examples of this kind of impurity and dishonoring of the body, Paul mentions both consensual lesbianism and sodomy, male homosexuality. Now the third sin on the list, uh, still here under the heading of sexual sin, is sensuality or debauchery. Dr. Joe Boob gives a definition. Debauchery is an open or reckless contempt for decency and propriety. Strong's Concordance gives one of the definitions as conduct which is shocking to public decency. So debauchery, uh, sensuality is a forward, open, and in-your-face kind of indecency. Now I find it striking reading through this list and looking into these definitions, uh, once again, just how remarkably similar Paul's day was to our day. You know, we see sexual immorality and sexual perversions are not new. You know, our culture seems to have the idea that we are breaking new ground, right? This, this what we're seeing is progress. You know, it is only now our enlightened society that is finally breaking free and allowing free expression of sexuality, right? Enabling people to be who they truly are. What we see, though, is that this, there is nothing new about this. You know, this is just paganism rebranded. Uh, rebellion and contempt for God, his laws and his norms is nothing new, is nothing groundbreaking or revolutionary. It is as old as the Garden of Eden. And this is as destructive now as it was then. And so Paul warns the church, they lived in a debauched age. And as you can see through reading 1 Corinthians, even some of the churches had a difficult time of breaking free from their former ways of life and from the influence of the culture. And so Paul warns solemnly, a Christian must not walk according to the flesh. They must not allow their sinful nature to be the one that's calling the shots. Christians must be separate from the world. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Knowing the kind of culture in which we live should cause us to realize that we may need to take some radical steps so that we might be able to see things rightly. You know, we are so saturated by sin, and by this sin in particular, that we can easily become numb to it. Trying to come to see these things rightly is like a fish trying to understand that he's wet. You know, this is all he knows. He is saturated in it. He's surrounded by it every day. This is his idea of normal. And so we must strive to have our thinking shaped not by the culture, not by the assumptions of the world around us, but by the word of the true and living God. 
We must not walk according to the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, or debauchery. These are the works of the flesh. These are the desires of our sinful nature. And as Christians, as new creatures in Christ, we must put these sins to death. We must have our thinking changed. Brothers and sisters, for us as the people of God, sexual immorality must not be thought of as normal. Pornography, fornication, simply messing around with somebody that you aren't married to, these things are not okay. They must not be tolerated. Notice, these are sins that are on Paul's list, of which he says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, part of the argument given by secular culture for why sexual sin should be tolerated is that it doesn't really hurt anyone. You know, what happens in the bedroom is nobody else's business. Well, for one thing, as we've seen, the toleration of sexual sin by our culture has not actually stayed in people's private bedrooms now, has it? It's on our TVs, it's plastered on billboards, it's in the ads and notifications that push themselves on our phones. It's on the internet and is literally paraded through our streets. You know, we see in God's law that sexual sin is treated very, very seriously. Now, because of our conditioning from our secular culture, our first instinct is often to assume that God was just being way, way too severe in, in the punishments that he had. The death penalty? Really? For that? It's just, just adultery. All these laws and rules, these instructions about how to make up for it if you have sinned sexually, these requirements for restitution, well, that's a little intense, don't you think? That's the wrong assumption. As Toby Sumter argued, when we see somebody that has a high-tech security system or a top-of-the-line safe, our first assumption should not be, wow, that guy must be super paranoid. But rather, wow, he must be protecting something really important. Right? He must have something to guard that is extremely valuable. And again, as we are reminded that these laws and rules are the security system given by God himself, our assumption should never be that God is overreacting. Rather, we should ask this question, what was God protecting? Right? How serious is this issue? And if we think that he was overreacting, perhaps we're not seeing things rightly. Now, sexual sin in general, and adultery in particular, is an assault upon the most foundational institution that God has ordained for human society. And that is family. The Bible views sexual immorality as treason. Right? It is a betrayal of the most fundamental human institution. And notice in Scripture that is not the state 
but the family. When sexuality is handled rightly and biblically by a culture, families are strengthened and built up. Where God's laws and norms for sexuality are abandoned, families are devastated. Just think of some of the consequences we see around us. Children born out of wedlock and raised without fathers. The statistical correlations between fatherlessness and all manner of societal ills is staggering. You know, look this up sometime, but things like drug and alcohol abuse, suicide, high school dropout, poverty, crime, and teen pregnancy rates are all far higher among the fatherless. And I think the connection between fatherlessness and sexual immorality should be obvious. In addition, we see issues of abortion, literally the murder of the unborn, families ripped apart through adultery and divorce, the paralyzing impacts, the love-destroying and life-destroying impacts of pornography. All of these things and more are the direct result, the direct fruit of sexual immorality being tolerated and celebrated by society. This is all the fruit of pornea. And so the idea that sexuality is none of the business of a community could not be farther from the truth. You know, we see just on the societal level that how a culture handles sexuality has a massive impact on the culture and community as a whole. You know, in addition, as we read through the law of God and we see God saying to Israel, do not commit these sins, for the lands that I'm driving out before you, the nations I'm driving out before you, did all of these things, and they polluted the land so that the land vomited out its inhabitants. Tolerating and, se and celebrating sexual sin brings the judgment of God upon communities. And for these reasons, the entire community should therefore have a vested interest to see the family protected, and to see sexual immorality curbed. And so let us begin by curbing this sin in ourselves. Let us examine our own thinking. Have we unconsciously adopted the views of our debaucherous culture? Do we downplay and dismiss sexual sin when we see it in movies, hear it in songs, or are bombarded by it on the internet? Or do we even notice it anymore? If you find that you have become numb to these things, then I would suggest to you that it may be time for a purge of what you are taking in. Moving on from sexual sin, we come to the next sin on the vice list, that is idolatry. Now idolatry is the sin of worshipping or serving something man-made in the place of the Creator. Now in pagan cultures it manifested itself fairly concretely, right, they would take a physical idol carved from wood or stone uh, and they would bow down to it and worship it either as God or as a representation of a god. And so we see the sin of idolatry is creating a rival to the one true and living God, 
In order to understand idolatry, we first need to understand God. We must know that he alone, in fact, is God. He alone is uncreated, and he alone is your creator. And so he, then, is the one who is worthy and deserving of worship. He is the one who is deserving of all honor, glory, and praise. Now, mankind is inescapably religious. God made us to be worshipers. And the fact is, we will worship something. To boil it all down, at the end of the day, we really only have two options, or two categories of options. We will either be worshipers of the Creator, or of something in the creation. It will either be the one true and living God, or it will be idols of various kinds. God, by virtue of who he is, deserves our worship. He made us for himself. Colossians 1 says, in fact, that the entire creation was created through and for the Lord Jesus Christ. We therefore will either be living in obedience to God, giving Him the honor and glory and worship that He is due, or else we will be living in idolatrous rebellion, refusing to acknowledge the right of the Creator God to be worshipped and served by His creation. And as God says in the second commandment, he is a jealous God. And that brings up a common objection. Some people say, well, if God is jealous, then that makes him seem kind of petty. You know, C.S. Lewis, before his conversion, uh, described that he thought of God as being like a petty, a vain woman seeking after compliments. Now, we typically tend to dislike self-exaltation when we see it in people. And so how, how can we understand here uh, a jealous God who would command us to praise him? How, how do we make sense of this? Well, one of the big reasons why we dislike self-exaltation in other people is because we know that they are simply not worthy of what they seem to think they are. That, and in our pride, we see them as a rival to our own exaltation. But notice here that with God, you have something completely different. In God, you have something who is in every way, someone in every way, completely perfect and completely worthy of all our exaltation. He is deserving of it in the truest sense. So just think, if God himself were to give an evaluation, you ask God, what is the most glorious thing in all of existence? What would God conclude if he were just to be objective and honest? Himself. The triune God. So here's the key to this dilemma, this question of jealousy. 
we must understand that God is the one being for whom self-exaltation is a righteous act. Unlike you and me and others in our sinful pride, God is completely and utterly deserving of all the praise and honor that he commands. And so when God says that he is jealous, he is simply saying that he is unwilling to see that which rightly belongs to him given to a rival. That is a righteous form of jealousy. You know, in the same way that you are righteously jealous for the romantic affections of your spouse. They made a covenant with you. And so you are not okay with the idea of what belongs rightly to you being given to someone else, to a rival. That is a righteous form of jealousy. God properly deserves our worship, service, honor, and praise. And he is righteously unwilling to see what he belongs, what belongs to him, uh, given to a rival. As our God and our maker, to render him what he is due means that we must worship and serve him in the way that he requires. Now, how does God require us to worship and serve him. How much of us are we to give in service and worship to God? Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what does God require of us? May we simply pay him lip service? Is it enough to give our token act of worship or service to him while continuing to live for ourselves? Do we really think God is satisfied because we usually pray before eating and sometimes make it to church on Sunday? What did Christ say was the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. That is to say, to love God with every part of your being, with everything that you are, and with every area of your life. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. This is what God requires of us. To give him the honor, worship, and service that he deserves means that we will serve him with everything that we are. So how do we avoid the sin of idolatry? By seeking to do everything in our lives to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And notice in that text, this goes down to the seemingly mundane things, like eating and drinking. 
Right? According to scripture, there is a way to eat and drink and to do everything else to the glory of God. Everything relates to God. There is no part of our lives where Christ's lordship does not apply. And so we must hold God as first in our hearts in all things. Seeking to honor and glorify him in everything that we do. You can think of it in terms of direction. This thing that I'm going to do, what am I aiming at in this action? Am I aiming this thing that I'm doing at the glory of God? Am I doing it in a way that would seek to bring him honor and glory? Is this something that I'd be willing to ask him to bless? If not, there's a very good chance that I am not serving and honoring him by that action, but I'm rather guilty of some form of idolatry. Let's continue on. So the next sin on our list here is sorcery, and this is also, again, related to idolatry. Uh, The Greek word in the text here is pharmakeia, translated as sorcery or witchcraft. And that may sound familiar to us, and it is in fact the same root word from which we get the modern word, pharmacy. And as Joe Boot points out, in the ancient world, witchcraft or sorcery frequently involved the use of drugs. Drugs and poisons for various evil intentions. Uh, Drugs which would be intended to bring about an altered state of consciousness and uh, possibly to open up a realm, uh, to open up your mind to different forces. Now what we see through scripture is actually the Bible is not silent about magic. You may remember in Exodus we saw Moses had a showdown with the magicians in Egypt, these sorcerers, uh, men who imitated the miraculous of signs, pardon me, the miraculous signs of Moses uh, by using their secret arts. It says in Exodus 7.22. We see numerous sorcerers and witches throughout the Old Testament. And even into the book of Acts, uh, the apostles get in trouble because they cast a demon out of a girl, uh, of a slave girl, who previously had abilities as a fortune teller. Now these things may not be well understood, but the fact is they are no less real today. God's law prohibits all forms of witchcraft, sorcery, necromancy, divinations, fortune-telling, occult practice, and the basic reason is that all these things are forms of idolatry. Now there are, in fact, spiritual forces at work in this world. We see scripture speaks of principalities and powers, spiritual forces in the heavenly places. But what we need to understand is that these are not rival gods, These are not powers that we are free to serve or to call upon as a source of power for ourselves. But instead, any spiritual being, hear me closely, any spiritual being that someone may come into contact with through witchcraft or sorcery is a spiritual being that is in rebellion to God. God's angels will not respond through practicing witchcraft. These would be fallen angels, Satan and his demons. And so Christians, 
must not begin dabbling in witchcraft. Do not open any doors in your life to the spiritual forces of darkness. So understand, paganism, neo-paganism, Wicca, astrology, so-called white magic, uh, New Age religion, sorcery, witchcraft, all forms of occult practice, these things have no place among the people of God, but rather these are the tools and practices of God's enemies. God alone is to be worshipped and served as God, and so we must not go looking for power from other spiritual forces. In addition, we are called repeatedly by Scripture to be sober-minded, to be clear in our thinking. And so we must not seek to alter our state of consciousness, whether that be for the purposes of opening ourselves to spiritual forces, as in witchcraft and sorcery, or even simply for recreation. We, must, we are not to let anything cloud our judgment. As God's people, we are always seeking to grow in holiness. And so it is the height of foolishness to intentionally take in something that would impair our judgment and cause us to act in ways that we otherwise wouldn't. As we'll cover when we come to the fruit of the Spirit, one of the key things that the Holy Spirit produces in the people of God is self-control. And so we must not abandon self-control through the use of mind-altering substances. So sorcery, witchcraft, these various forms of idolatry, they are the works of the flesh, and as Scripture makes clear, have no place among the people of God. As Christians, we are called to separate ourselves from the world. We must not live according to the desires of the flesh. You know, we looked last week at the key to sanctification, Verse 16, look with me in the text. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the repentant Christian, there is nothing more powerful in our battle against sin than growing in communion with God. Growing into greater joy in God. But here's one thing that we must understand. There can be no half measures here. I remember chatting with a coworker once. Uh, he was a guy I'd often explained the gospel to him. Uh, he was sort of dancing around the edges of Christianity. You know, he'd go for church, go to church for a few weeks at a time. He would try for a while to pray and to read his Bible. But I remember one conversation we had where he was telling me that, you know, this just really isn't working for me. You know, it wasn't doing for him uh, what he was hoping it was going to do. Now, by the grace of God, as far as I know, this brother has now come to true faith in Christ. Uh, but at that time, I, I do not think he was understanding the gospel. Uh, he was treating it rather as something of a self-help message. And it's got me thinking, what he was doing is actually what even many professing Christians will do. You know, he's kind of like that guy sitting on the dock by the lake, just dipping his toes in a little bit. Yeah, I'll try this out a little bit, see if there's any, any benefit for me here. And we must understand this is not how it works. We can't simply be sitting on the dock and 
dipping our toes in the water. God wants all of you. So dive in. You know, take a run, cannonball in, whatever your preferred method of getting into the lake. You've got to be all in. For us, in our sanctification, our battle for joy in God, this too must be wholehearted and a complete surrender of our lives to God. Nothing will hinder our pursuit of God. Nothing will hinder our joy in God, quite like unconfessed sin. If our aim is to walk by the Spirit, to grow in communion with God, to grow to love Him more, to be more joyful in Him, then we are absolutely sabotaging these efforts if we are still clinging to some sin. You know, it's like having your shoes tied together before you even start the race. You try to take a stride and fall flat on your face. You are like the person who calls an exterminator to come and to deal with your cockroach infestation, but then tells him, don't open that spare room. Right? Don't kill any of the cockroaches in there. Christians, we must be separate. We must be holy. We cannot cling to the desires of the flesh and walk by the spirits at the same time. You know, if you are a Christian, if you have the Spirit of God, do not expect Him to produce the fruit of love, joy, peace, etc., while leaving you alone about that sin and that porn problem, those eyes that go where they shouldn't without discipline. That thing that you love more than God, whatever it might be. God does not abide rivals. And so do not expect the Holy Spirit to grant you any peace or joy while you are clinging to your sin. Now if this is you, if you are that person and striving after joy in God, wanting peace, but also clinging to a sin, unwilling to repent of it, unwilling to confess it, unwilling to put it to death, then it's actually a very good sign if the Holy Spirit is not granting you peace. That is a good sign that the Spirit is at work in you, convicting you of your sin. He will not give you rest until you deal with that sin. And when we come to see this rightly, we'll understand actually that one of the worst things God could possibly do for you would be to give you peace in your sin. Do you want joy in God? Do you want your heart to be happy in God? Do you want to walk by the Spirit? Then do not hold anything back. Let go of that sin. Open up the spare room and let the exterminator in. Confess your sin and by the Spirit purge the dark corners of your heart. Here's A.W. Tozer. 
He writes, many Christians are not joyful persons because they are not holy persons. And they are not holy persons because they are not filled with the Holy Spirit. And they are not filled with the Holy Spirit because they are not separated persons. The Spirit cannot fill whom he cannot separate. And whom he cannot fill, he cannot make holy. And whom he cannot make holy, he cannot make happy. And in addition, such have moral weaknesses and suffer frequent defeats. They have a dulled understanding and often live far below the standard of the scriptures and thus outside the will of God. The worst of it is that many in this condition will defend their flaws, their weaknesses, and defeats in fiery, red-faced indignation. Close quote. Sin that is allowed to remain will decimate our spiritual lives. It will cripple our communion with God. For to walk after the desires of the flesh is to walk in the opposite direction of God. You know, just as you cannot walk both north and south at the same time, so also you cannot pursue God and sin at the same time. As we've seen, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. To walk by the Spirit, and so to walk toward God, is to turn away from sin. Now, this is the call to repentance, to a change of mind and therefore a change of direction. You can think of repentance as doing a 180. You know, we were going this direction, and now we're going this direction. We were following the desires of the flesh, but now we are walking by the Spirit. We were serving idols, and we are now serving the true and living God. Perhaps we were even dabbling in dark powers but have now been turned away to and through an even greater power. Now, Christians, we are not people who will never sin anymore. Unfortunately, we will not in this life arrive at a sinless state of perfection. But Christians are those who are at war with sin and those who know what to do when they sin. We repent. We confess our sin to God. We seek to make it right with those we have sinned against, making restitution. Faith and repentance are not a one-time thing. They're not simply things that we do at conversion. But the Christian life is a lifestyle of faith and repentance. And as we talk about the destructive impacts of sin, as we see some of these warnings that Scripture gives to us, again, verse 21, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We must remember to guard ourselves against despair. Because even if we have done all the things on Paul's list, we must remember that it is for sinners like these that Christ came to die. His blood can make the vilest cry.
clean. You know, it was not read for us this morning. After listing that sin, that list of sins in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified. And so whoever you are, whatever you've done, the gospel command comes to you. Repent. Turn from your sin and turn and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that command comes with a promise that all who do will find perfect forgiveness. They will find in Christ a perfect Savior able to forgive all of their sins. If you find yourself in grief and misery for your sin, I'm beginning to grasp the heinousness of it and wondering how God could ever forgive such a sinner as you. I encourage you, simply ponder the value of the blood of Christ. Sin is truly terrible. The fact that we have scorned our own creator, the great and magnificent God of all things, is a more terrible reality than what we will ever comprehend in this lifetime. But greater still is the power and worth of the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled for the very purpose of forgiving sins like yours. And so do not blaspheme the work of Christ by supposing that your sin is too much for his blood. He took the sin of his people upon himself. That punishment was laid on him. Isaiah 53, verse 6, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And if there is any doubt in your mind as to whether or not that debt has been satisfied, the resurrection answers that question. I'll close with the words of the Puritan writer Thomas Goodwin. Speaking of the debt of our sin being placed upon Christ. Other debtors may possibly break their prisons, but Christ could not have broken through this, for the wrath of the all-powerful God was this prison, from which there was no escaping, no bail, nothing would be taken to let him go, but full satisfaction. And therefore, to hear that Christ is risen and so has come out of prison is an evidence that God is satisfied, that Christ is discharged by God himself and so is without sin, walking abroad again at liberty. Therefore, the Apostle proclaims a mighty victory obtained by Christ's resurrection over death, the grave, and the strength of sin. And he cries out, Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. You may now rest secure. Christ is risen. Who therefore? shall condemn.